The Pace Line Podcast is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health conscious people get special life insurance rates. Go to healthiq.com forward slash paceline to support the show and learn more. And the Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The coast is calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now on to the show. Hello, Paceliners. Michael Houghton here, a.k.a. Hottie. How you doing? Hey, on this show, we're going to get off the bike and on foot. This is going to be our walking slash hiking slash running episode. And currently, I'm on the uh, Backbone Trail, which is a very a popular trail here in Los Angeles. Not far from me is Old Topanga Canyon Boulevard, and cyclists are on their Saturday morning rides whizzing down that street. And I would be, too... Were it not for the sling I am currently wearing. See, about a week ago, I ended up on PCH on the ground. A little bike crash. Yep, a little collarbone issue. So, uh, I have to find something else to do. And it is um, currently hiking as opposed to grabbing a pair of handlebars. Uh, but actually, just prior to the injury, I had started running a little bit. And so I thought it was a good time to talk about running and cycling. We have uh, spoken to an expert who knows both sides, who knows how to train cyclists and runners. And so we're going to hear the differences between the muscles used for running and cycling and how a cyclist can successfully get off the bike and start running without hurting themselves and yet uh, keep their training going too. So enjoy the show. Kick off your cycling shoes. Grab those running shoes. And uh, we are going to enjoy this hike. This is the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, Patrick, Hottie, and Fatty. This is show number 90. Holy cow, we've made it to 90. I feel, I can feel it. I, I see the light at the end of the tunnel here. It's a podcast of Red Kite Prayer. And of course, if you haven't subscribed, please do find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. In this episode, we're going to talk about broken helmets, broken bodies, and fire. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm fine. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm getting to ride again, raced a little cross this past weekend, uh, and giving out clothing by the boatload, but we'll get to that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Hottie, how about yourself? Uh, still on the mend, unfortunately, so no riding, but uh, starting to move a little bit. So there's some PT going on and um, some light jogging, hiking, uh, and quality time with Mrs. Hottie, which is always great, so... Things are going good otherwise. Though. A little silver lining behind that broken collarbone. That's yeah. nice. That's very nice. Here's a little bit more silver lining. Guys, we've been getting some nice reviews. Uh, as our longtime listeners will know, whenever a great review really stands out or when we get righteously slammed, we read it on air. Uh, here's some one from MTB Geek one and this came out just uh, just recently. He said, I followed this podcast being a longtime reader for Fatty's blog when it started as a weight loss thing. Uh, side note, 
it never really stopped being a weight loss thing uh, <laughs> for 12 years. Anyway, he continues, the combo of the three of you mesh perfect with each of your personalities to bring me back for each new episode. Keep it up, guys. If you want more epic races, make a visit to Michigan. You know, mm. I would like to do that. In fact, um, we had the three of us still have never been in a single place together at the same time. Mm -hmm. We got to pick a race and do it because... I want to see how we do. I, I, I think that there is a story there in the pace line racing against each isn't, other. Isn't uh, the Iceman Cometh, isn't that up in Michigan? Yep. Yeah. That's, that's the one. That's oh, the one. See, oh, we can no, kill two no, birds with one no, stone. Nope, 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 nope. Well, you could come and do hand-ups. Um, so <laughs> I understand you're good at those. Yeah. So here's an, here is another review. I'm, I'm doing two this time. Great insight from these guys every week is the headline on this one from J.P. Willis, 269. You know, you can tell that I'm, I'm reading the positive ones, but the fact is we're a five-star podcast. Yeah. Check us out. You will see we actually average out to five stars. Turns out people like us. Weird. He says, I came across this podcast in 2015 as I saw something about a fat cyclist in the show notes, and I myself am a fat cyclist. These are my people. Great show every time, and I love the new question of the week. And I love that too. And in fact, just launched a new, very important question. And I think you're going to see that it leads into our, also our first big segment for this week. My very important question, which I just posted on Twitter, and we've already got 180 votes on, is this. How many times... When involved in a bike crash, have you cracked or broken a helmet? The options are zero, knock on wood, one or two, three or five, three to five, I should say, or I've lost count, possibly because you've been concussed so often. Uh, Hottie, how many times have you uh, <laughs> cracked or broken a helmet? Oh, yeah, you would start with me. Um <laughs> you, well, know, you know you I'm, have recent history I, i'm pretty sure i am c i've lost count uh although i've i want to say i've kept most of them um there's a few hanging in the garage tattered Why? and broken um they're certainly they make good trophies pardon me yeah those cracked helmets they make good trophies they, good cautionary tales hanging there on the wall and of course my most recent one i was in a brand practically a brand new helmet a cask Protone, this is the helmet that Team Sky wears. When I went down on PCH, that one got bashed up pretty good. Um, it's funny, the matte black helmets, they don't show the damage like a white helmet does. Mm -hmm. A white helmet, you know, when you go down on the tarmac, I mean, you get that big black streak across it and it gets smashed <laughs> in. You, It looks the part. It looks like it's been through something. These new black matte, we're all looking like a Darth Vader or these stealthy look we all we all sport now. Those don't show anything. There's nothing there. You can hardly tell the thing's damaged. I mean, somebody could actually put it on accidentally without knowing that that thing was was crunched. So I think, I'm, um, I think I've lost count. And Mrs. Hottie, too, she has... Well, she would be A. She's one or two, I think. She's also broken a few. You know, you've just come up with a fantastic marketing idea. Helmets ought to have uh, layers of paint so that when you crash, you know, and you're rubbing off layers of paint on that helmet, you know, it really shows what's happened. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you want the story. When I crash, you know, I want to show off the bruise. I want to show it off on the helmet, too. How about you, Patrick? How many helmets have you killed? Just two. 
Just two? What? Just two. I and would have expected a much larger number for some I, reason. <laughs> I, I will say that uh, my last big crash uh, back in 2012, um, when I, when I, well, first of all, it was entirely face. It was all face, well, glasses too. But the, the helmet suffered nothing in the actual crash. <laughs> you it protected was, the helmet. <laughs> yeah. You know, I took one for the team. Took um, it on the chin. <laughs> That's not the way they're supposed to work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe Use your head like, when you crash. Yeah. Um, but when I rolled over onto my back to get slightly more comfortable, uh, I managed to uh, break the Rock Lock 4 on the back of my helmet. <laughs> Naturally. So that, that killed that helmet. But I've, I've damaged two from impact. So you broke a helmet by rolling over. I am, I'm not even going to count that. I'm, I'm not either. One. I'm, okay. No, no. I, I've broken two from impact. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think I've broken three. And the most recent one was this last weekend. Mm. Uh, and that takes us in to – oh, actually, you know, be, I'm going to back up for a second because here's where the stats are so far for our uh, readers slash listeners. Forty-five percent of our listeners say zero. Knock oh, on that's, wood. That's terrific. Yeah, you know, good for them. And seriously, knock on wood or uh, you know, laminate or whatever you are sitting at. Forty-seven percent, so uh, pretty close. One or two. Seven percent say three to five. So, uh, Hottie, uh, uh, you and I are in that in that kind of uh, dangerous, reckless wrecker mm-hmm. type. Uh, category and then only one percent say they've lost count so <laughs> how, uh, how many actual people is that one percent uh i don't know divide 180 what's one percent of 182 oh, i guess that like would be two, two people, people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so just right. a couple people good all right so and uh i'm one of my crashed helmet moments is from last weekend I went to Moab with uh, this group of guys that I've been riding with for, no lie, two decades now. Uh, Every uh, autumn, uh, sometime in late October or early November, uh, this group of about 10 of us get together and go to Moab or to St. George, and we have what we call our fall Moab trip, whether it's in Moab or St. George. And we're all either in our 50s or knocking on our 50s at this point. And things have kind of mellowed out a little bit, at least in terms of bedtime and what happens after the ride. But we are still doing the hard rides. Uh, do you guys, uh, have you heard of a ride in Moab called the Whole Enchilada? I don't know that I have. It's The, the Whole Enchilada is part of what I'm going to call Moab 3.0. If you remember Windows 1.0, Windows 2.0, <laughs> yeah. they were both terrible. It was in Windows 3.0 that it kind of came of age. I think Moab is in a 3.0 stage right now. In the last few years, there's been a real renaissance period of trail building. And the Whole Enchilada... Um, you take a you you rent a uh, you get a ride in a van up to the top of the LaSalle Mountains. You are at eleven thousand feet, and you spend the day mountain biking on a trail back down to Moab. So about a seven thousand foot drop. Mm. It is amazing. Most of it on single track. A lot of it on uh, on uh, slick rock. 
uh, some on uh, on Jeep or Double Track, a lot on hard, rocky stuff. I was riding a hardtail, as is my style. Uh, a lot of people looked at the bike I was riding and scratching their heads because it's mostly guys on big hit bikes, and that's definitely the way to go. It is a hard day of descending with a little bit, I mean, a fair amount of climbing, about 2,000 feet of climbing in this as well. And I was feeling so smoked by the end of the day. Uh, just amazing riding, but I was beat on my uh, on my specialized single-speed hardtail. <laughs> oh, and, gosh. Hey, it's what I have. You know, I, I rode what I own. Um, which, I, you know, pro tip, it's okay to rent a full suspension bike when you go to Moab. In fact, probably a really great idea. Anyway, in uh, by the time we can, had connected up to the Porcupine Rim Trail, I just put a front my front wheel into some surprisingly deep sand unexpectedly, and just flipped over the front and pile drived into a rock. Uh, I wish that you know I wish I had a follow me drone uh, so I could see what it really looked like, but I kind of imagine a Roadrunner cartoon type uh, moment where I'm Wiley e. Coyote and I go. You know, sticking headfirst into into a rock, and I heard the helmet make a loud crack sound, but I didn't know it was the helmet. I thought it was my neck. Um, I just, you know, just bam, hard downhill, plenty of momentum into rock and sand, um, and I laid there for a minute, wondering if I was concussed, wondering if I still had access to all my limbs. Turns out I did. Turns out I wasn't going to go unconscious. See, saw a few stars and sat up and want to, you know, shout out to whoever it was who was behind me because they were strangers, lots of people on the trail this last weekend. But they stopped and checked me out, made sure that I was okay, and hung around until it was a sure thing that I was okay. Uh, mountain bikers are good people. Anyway. I take off the helmet of it finally, and yeah, my nice uh, new POC helmet uh, busted. Mm. And I don't say that in a bad way. I say that in a good way. The helmet did the thing that it is meant to do. But, you know, I did sit there saying, am I too old for this kind of thing? Uh, I mean, that that amount of riding, that amount of descending, man, it just, you know, it, it just left me beat up for the whole rest of the day. You don't think that that has anything to do with the fact that you're on a single-speed hardtail, do you? I think it has something to do with it, but we're all that age, and we were all feeling pretty smoked the next day, uh, regardless of what bikes we were on. That said, I'm not, I'm not saying that, no, oh, I'm too old for Moab, because I just, you know, it, the, a day like that leaves me a little bit tireder than it used to. But I don't care because Moab has become so awesome. I mean, in addition to the whole enchilada, which is a full day of mountain bike descending, uh, we did uh, High Masa to Captain Ahab, which is where the uh, old Amasabak Trail used to be, which was just a Jeep trail. But now there is a fantastic single track uh, uphill only trail that leads to a new downhill-only single-track trail. And they're just remarkable. And then there's MAG-7, which is a connecting of seven fantastic downhill single-track trails. 
together. So Mag 7, Magnificent 7, Seven Trails, and then 7 Up that brings you right back up to it. There is uh, Moab's always been kind of cool, right? But there was some, what I would say, backing off or maybe a little bit of backlash against Moab because it was all, you had this incredible canvas for Amazing Trail, but that we mostly just rode our mountain bikes on existing uh, motorcycle or Jeep trails. And that's changing. There is so much great new single track there. It's incredible. If you haven't been to Moab in a while, go. And finally, if you have been to Moab in a while, or and, but it's been a while since you have done the famous Slick Rock Trail, go do Slick Rock again. Uh, we did Slick Rock for the first time um, in, I would say, six or seven years. We'd stopped doing it because we had done it so many times and it kind of been like, yeah, I get that joke. I had forgotten how amazing this iconic trail really is. It and maybe it's the tires and bikes and everything have gotten so much better too. Um, cleaning all kinds of stuff that I never was able to. And I don't know how much of that is me, how much of it is the bike. I think a lot of it is the bike. Um, but man, just go to Moab. I know this sounds like an ad for Moab, but had a great trip. Brought to and, you by the Utah Travel and Tourism Bureau. <laughs> Fatty, can you get me over one mental barrier though? So Moab, yeah, it sounds like a, a beautiful place and a great place to go. But the Moab trail system has taken two very tough words and combined them, and it gives me a bit of the heebie-jeebies. The two words slick are slick and rock. And, rock. and <laughs> I see slip yeah. and fall or slide and crash when I hear slick <laughs> rock. Uh, how yeah, does that not happen that... Uh, every five feet of your riding? No, that's a, really the crazy thing about Slick Rock. It, it is a misnomer. It is it is the exact opposite of what Slick Rock actually is. Slick Rock is sandstone, pure and simple, right? The Slick Rock Trail is is 13 miles of riding on sandstone full-time. You get a nice soft compound tire at about 18 PSI, and you find that it is not not only not slick, it is the grippiest ride you are ever going to have. You can go up angles that you otherwise just couldn't even contemplate, right? Put it in a low gear and churn up stuff, and you're like, I'm going up a 45-degree climb mm. because your tires never spin out. It's just incredible. It's slick um, if you if it's wet, right? Well, I was going to say. Which it rarely is. <laughs> what happens if it rains? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, when it rains, then you go and do a different trail, right? Most, you know, water drains very quickly here. It's, it's not, and it never rains for very long. Um, but this time of year, October, early November, Moab is just wonderful. It used to be that it was kind of quiet this time of year. Now it's always busy and hotels have become very expensive. One more pro tip, Airbnb or uh, any of the other competing uh, rent a place for an evening or for a weekend uh, businesses, use one of those. Much less expensive, much nicer than you're going to get at a hotel. Uh, the 10 of us went, rented a, you know, got an Airbnb place for, I think, 600 bucks a night. And, you know, so, you know, my two nights cost me 120 bucks, which I could never have got in a hotel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all I needed was a bed, 
but I also had a kitchen. It was a very nice setup. So much easier, nicer, kind of pleasant way to handle a Moab weekend and a much more affordable way to go to. And there's sushi in Moab now, too. Uh-huh. There's no ocean there. Wait, 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 wait. You, you would trust fish to be completely fresh that far from the ocean? Well, I get, I get sushi in Salt Lake City all the time. It's a three-hour drive difference. It's, I mean, it's landlocked no matter where you are in Utah. So, well, yeah. But getting sushi in Salt Lake City is not really a selling point for the efficacy of sushi in Moab. Yeah, but, you know, you know <laughs> it's, it's a tourist location. People go there and they eat all kinds of different food. Yeah, the place was uh, Sabaku, Sabaku. I'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced, S-A-B-A-K-U. Mm-hmm. And it was fine. All 10 of us ate there. All 10 of us were fine the very next day. The place was packed and the sushi was fine. It was, I wouldn't say it was the best sushi I've ever had, but you wouldn't expect that. It was just, you know, it was a place where you could get a nice meal. And, uh, you all know, right. the, the town has grown up. That's that's the main point. So, Fall Moab, bunch of 50-year-old guys, had a fantastic time. I'm still a little bit sore, and I bought it, and, I'm, well, I'm going to have to buy a new helmet. So Now, I know you're not really the right guy to ask this question, but you're also currently the only guy who can <laughs> maybe answer this question. Um, how many craft breweries are there in Moab? Um. There are quite a few. Moab Brewery is the most famous of all of them. And as you as you know, uh, beer isn't really my thing. And so I'm not going to be able to give you a great answer. However, it is definitely a thing in Moab. Well, you know, you, you won't you won't run out of places to go and find yourself a good beer there. Cool. You are not the only mountain biker who will want one that day. <laughs> right. Well, I remember eating at Moab Brewery, you know, 10, 12 years ago, whatever that was when mm-hmm. I was last there. Um, I don't remember the quality of the beer. I just remember an enjoyable meal. Yeah. It, and, you know, 10 years ago, Moab Brewery was one of very few places you could go and get a good, uh, you know, a good post-ride dinner. Me talking about sushi was kind of by way of saying your options are way, way wider you actually have options now, yeah. You have a lot of cool. options now. I mean, it's it's uh, it's the park city of mountain biking, rock climbing, um, rafting. It's just, you know, it's a resort town. It's expensive for like a resort town now, and it's busy like a resort town. But when you're out on your bike, it's still a desert mountain biking paradise. I How? love it. Cool. Well, I... Um, another question that you probably can't answer, but you may have some feel for in terms of all the recreation that goes on there. I know there are like Jeep tours and whatnot. Sure. What, what piece of the overall, you know, recreation Venn diagram or, or pie chart would mountain biking be is your guess? You know, I would probably say 25%, um, on any given weekend, um, the motor, uh, enthusiasts, are really filling up uh, the hotels. You can see very easily how many there are, right? Because, you know, they've got their vehicles in the parking spaces. And there's a lot of Jeeps and a lot of motorcycles. I And you see a lot of them there. And it used to be that you kind of competed for who was going to be, you know, who's going to be on a given trail. That's kind of diverged now. The original stuff, you know, the original Amasabak, for example, or Gold Bar Rim, 
the Jeeps are on that. But there are constructed, beautifully executed and conceived single track trails that are mount- for mountain bikers built by genius mountain bikers. And you're no longer having to really compete for that. And then, of course, there's lots and lots of rafting, rock climbing, base jumping, all of that. It's, you know, whatever, you know, whatever tickles your fancy for outdoor desert, sandstone, wonderland, Moab's got it. Wow. Cool. I would say so. So there you go. How was your weekend, guys? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I beat myself up in three cyclocross races. Yeah? Yeah, it's the uh, annual uh, DG DG Gelati Cup uh, presented by Bike Monkey. And uh, so we raced on Friday night and then Saturday morning and then Sunday morning, or at least my categories, that's the time they raced. Um, you know, some of the upper categories didn't race till the afternoon, of course. Uh, but it's neat. Uh, Friday night and Saturday morning are both at the fairgrounds here. And it's, you know, kind of what you think of as a pretty current style of cyclocross where there's a whole lot of ribbon a bunch of poles and, you know, a rather intestinal route strewn around. And then they had, you know, big sets of lights set up so that you could actually see. Um, and it was just silly amounts of fun. Uh, you know, lots of people standing around with beer and heckling. And um, I'd say our heckling game is getting a little better at this point. Um, Saturday morning, you know, got up and I, I just always do all three races, even though Saturday isn't quite as much fun even though the course is a little more interesting they actually changed some bits of the course uh from one day to the other but then sunday is my favorite cyclocross course i have ever raced because it's more like an old school cross course and that it's over hill and dale and you know goes around stuff and up this and down this little bit of single track and then you know down this fire road it's it's just crazy crazy amounts of fun and uh uh, I got a couple beer hand ups, um, scored well on those. I, I took everything. I took every hand up I was offered, save for one <laughs> waffle that I just couldn't quite get to the other side of the course and grab. Um, I was on the, the left side or I was on the right side and the waffle was on the left side and I just couldn't get there, but all the beers I took. Um, and then after my race was over, um, Notice how I'm leaving out whatever position I finished in. Um, (laughs) Once my race was over, then I got together with a bunch of friends and we gave even more beer hand ups. Uh, And, you know, one of one of my uh, RKP, one of our RKP readers, uh, this fella, Jim, uh, he took every single hand up he was offered, which means if there was a line of three of us with two beers and one little cup of wine, that was also happening. Oh, also cookies. He would stop, get off his bike and take each hand up and then get back on his bike and keep going. On his very last lap, he got off the bike and did 10 push-ups before taking all the hand ups and then continuing on his merry way. Jim rocks. Jim is what I like about cyclocross. You know, this time of year is when exactly that kind of thing ought to be happening. That is very cool. You notice, Hadi, mm. that I'm not asking you quite yet what you did this last weekend, but that's because I know, and that's what we're going to talk about after we take just a quick short break right here on the Faceline. Here we go. Let's do it. We're doing it right now. 12.7 miles of adrenaline. 
Slick Rock Trail here in Moab, Utah. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you're a cyclist. And because you're a cyclist, you can save up to 25.5% on your life insurance by purchasing it through Health IQ. In addition to all the usual information you give for insurance, such as age, gender, height, weight, and nicotine use, the amount of riding you do each week is considered, and you can take quizzes that may reduce your payments further. It turns out that knowing what it takes to be fit has its own value. Health IQ knows that people who ride have an 18% lower risk of heart disease, a 28% lower risk of overall mortality, and a 45% lower risk of cancer. So drop by healthiq.com forward slash paceline podcast to get your free no obligation quote. And we're back with the pace line, Hottie, Fatty, Patrick, and Hottie. We haven't talked about what you've been doing recently, but that's at least partially because we feel bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> you had that wreck a while back. You haven't been able to do any riding, but I understand that bikes are still a pretty big part of your life. What's going on? Yeah, well, you know, no riding because basically uh, holding on to the handlebars right now would – not be a pleasurable thing. It'd probably be somewhat painful, in fact. But, you know, <laughs> all, the bikes are always on the mind. Uh, and uh, I had a little project to take care of this weekend. You guys were out riding. I was uh, in my garage building, building a bike, in fact. I got my hands on something that somebody didn't want anymore for some reason. I love these little finds, you know. Like, I have this choke that I ride to work. I found that in my parents' garage. It was free. I mean, these are the bikes I love, you know, that thing I love. Uh, my shop got this bike, the shop I, I work through, Giant Santa Monica. They are also an independent fabrications dealer. And somebody brought a frame into them that they apparently didn't want to ride anymore. It's an, it's an indie fab frame. Hmm. Um, I don't know much about it other than it fits. Um, it has a longish head tube, about 180 or so. And that's pretty big. It's steel. Uh, so it's pretty sizable head tube. I know it fits 28s, but I don't know much more. I, I, I reached out to the seller, and even he didn't know a lot. We contacted any fabrications. The bike was welded in like the early 2000s, so their paperwork has kind of disappeared on it. So <laughs> it's a bit of a mystery bike, but it is a beautiful machine. And I took the time over the weekend to take some parts off a contemporary carbon fiber bike and move them over to my independent fabrication Beautiful blue bike, uh, put an NV fork on the front, so it's got some you know new bits. Interesting thing about um, bikes back then, uh, or th this this particular bike from this particular brand is, the seat post diameter is 26.8. So, you know, finding a seat post is a bit of a struggle. Uh, Thompson still makes stuff that, that you know, work in that size. But if you need zero offset and you like carbon, good luck. It's pretty difficult. In fact, I need some help if anybody has an idea. <laughs> Um, about what to do there. But I got the bike built up, really happy. I haven't really been able to, to take it out for a proper ride. That's probably going to happen this weekend. But it gets to a, a 
bigger picture here and a bigger question I have about um, where I'm headed as a cyclist. More and more now, guys, as I'm picking out and looking at bikes, um, this independent fabrication is not the only new machine I plan on bringing in here in the next few months. I've got another one on order right now. But predominantly what I'm looking at and the stuff I'm attracted to and the stuff I really want to ride now is not the the hottest, latest, lightest, stiffest thing. I find myself now attracted to and wanting to ride and wanting to own bikes made out of metal. In other words, steel. And first of all, the, the ride quality, as Patrick, I'm sure, will attest, cannot be not denied. It, it brings a, a quality that just can't be found. And, and for the folks who board one of these machines and find the love for it, yeah, you know, they're, they're indescribable almost. And I think this really started when I started riding my choach more. I mean, it's a lug steel bike from the, I don't know. And again, there's a bike I don't know much about the eighties sometime that just has this lovely ride to it. Um, and now I've got this independent fabrication. I've got a gravel bike on order. It's going to be steel as well. Um, but I'm wondering what this says about me as a rider, as a rider, you know, I used to ride carbon. I used to race. I used to do all that. Does the fact that someone gets on a steel bike or moves away from the lightest, fastest, stiffest stuff and is now going, hey, I like this thing here, which is not the, the most highly engineered bike going. Does that say anything about the evolution of the rider that maybe no longer he's so, not uh, the racer he once was, but now he's just a rider who's out enjoying himself? Do you think, do you read between the lines when you when you hear somebody say that, like, I want steel. I'm no longer favoring the carbon race machine. I'm moving towards oh, yeah. steel now. Do you think that says <laughs> something about the rider? I Absolutely. Think it, says <laughs> it says that this is the old man podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I'm talking about, oh, yeah, we go to bed at about 9 p.m. in Moab, and you're talking about how you're not really interested in race bikes with the harsh feel anymore. You want something a little more comfortable. <sighs> I tell you what, I, uh, I don't think it says a bad thing about you, though. It says that your tastes have become discerning enough that you no longer see weight of a bike as the sole critical factor in the quality of mm -hmm. the ride. Pat yeah. Patrick, yeah, Patrick, no. what have I become? Uh, <laughs> I would say just a, a more discerning connoisseur. I mean, in a way, I compare this, you know, because I've had a similar evolution and I know lots and lots of people who've had a very similar evolution. You know, they're not fed up with carbon bikes, but there's there's a subtler quality um, to the ride that they're looking for. And, you know, I've talked to some winemakers uh, who will note, like, you know, when we get to talking about wines we've liked in the past and what we're buying now, uh, I've had some people tell me, well, see, your your palate's maturing. You know, you're not going for these, you know, full throttled, uh, mm -hmm. you know, high octane wines anymore. Um, you know, you're you're you've discovered some of the more uh, ephemeral qualities, some of the subtler differences between wines. Um, and it's like, I, you know, I whatever my my taste has evolved. Um, I don't. I don't really stop to think about that all that much, but I'd say that, you know, my taste in bikes, yeah, has certainly evolved. I mean, I've got two steel bikes. Uh, I've got a titanium bike, you know, yeah, I've still got some carbon. Um, 
but the two bikes, when I go to my garage and pull out something with a drop bar on it, the two bikes I grab most often uh, are my seven air heart. <laughs> Even though that's a travel bike, I don't care that it's got couplers. I ride that thing all the time. Yeah. Um, and then of course my Danucci. Uh, when it comes to drop bars, I grab the Danucci more than I grab anything else. Yeah, but you, and you're also in your neck of the woods, uh, acceptance of a broader spectrum of bikes, I think, is there. You know the SoCal scene. It's oh, yeah. all about having the hottest, latest thing. And you show up on a steel bike around. I mean, I showed up on my Choach on a Century Ride in a sea of carbon fiber. And people were like, what's that? They just didn't even understand, you know. Yeah. And, and yeah. if you run with the in crowd around here, I mean, you know, you show up on anything that doesn't have a big S on it or people just look at you funny, you know? And, and the other half of this too, you, you always, you always want to feel like I, I can still hang. I'm still fast. I'm still, still the racer guy. I'm still all of that. And you just wonder, Oh, can I still be the racer guy, but mount something that, uh, that is not made of, you know, fibers. And that, I think that's TBD. You know, I think we'll find that one out. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, not everybody gets to that point where they think, oh, I want to go back and try a metal bike again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that's fine. Um, I have just found that I, I like that diversity of experience. You know, I wouldn't want to go down to my garage and not be able to grab a carbon fiber bike. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there's room for all of them. And I've enjoyed, you know, expanding back into that, you know, Ferris and also non-Ferris uh, frame set world. Mm -hmm. um, I hear from Rob Vandermark at seven that he's seeing a swing of the pendulum. You know, people who were customers of seven back in the 1990s and early 2000s who started buying all the hottest, latest, lightest carbon fiber are now buying sevens again. You know, so they've seen uh, an interesting, uh, you know, swing back of the pendulum toward what they're doing hmm. so I, and you know you look at the the popularity of nabs and all those builders out there that wouldn't exist without a customer base right well i'm looking forward to riding steel that's for sure so my uh independent fabrication should make its maiden voyage hopefully this saturday i might take it out for a small ride and then uh after that to be followed up with a nice brand new uh, steel gravel bike that uh also looking forward to so and fatty that's not all <laughs> there's more what else there, tell me what else. Yeah, there's more awkwardness there there are more curveballs well, don't hold back <laughs> so you're in a safe space prior to the crash and obviously uh while i've not been able to ride i decided to get on my feet more out of the pedals unclip and on the feet um a mm -hmm. couple of things i i decided that this off season i would try some running um, I don't know why. I think what happened was, you know, all the gravel grinding, what the cool thing is, you're off-road, you're riding, you're, you're riding uh, fire roads and what have you. And often I'd see trail runners, too, out there. I'm like, man, look at their, you know, they're moving right along. They seem like they're having a good time. They're running twos and threes. I said, damn, I should, you know, running is so efficient. And it's such a, if you have a small amount of time, it's such a great way to get out and get your burn and do your thing. And I thought... I should really try and mix it up this year. Well, then you crash, of course, on your bike, and you've got no choice. If you can't ride, you got to go do something. So 
running and then hiking while I've been crashed out. Running has not been good for for a sloppy shoulder, but I've taken yeah. to, to getting on my feet some more now. And I know, Fatty, you too, you've been you try to incorporate at least a little running into your your normal activities. I do. And in fact, as soon as we're done recording this episode, I am going out for a trail run. Awesome. Um, especially in the off season, uh, mixing it up a little bit, still trying to stay in some kind of shape, keep my aerobic base together is great. But also because it gets dark sooner and gets light later, I don't have as much time to exercise and you can get in a good hard quality workout with a run in, you know, 45 minutes or something. Um, and I just, you know, it, it's something different than getting, you know, getting on the kicker and doing an hour and a half of trainer road. Mm-hmm. Um, still fine with doing that, but I'm this year trying to do something different in part because I have a plan uh, to do a half marathon uh, later this summer. Um, there is a uh, the American Fort Cancer run, uh, the American Fort Canyon run against cancer half marathon. I've done once before. Looking forward to doing that again. And that is not a run that you want to just pull out of your ass. Yep. <laughs> and I have a I have a little calendar up on my calendar right now that has some uh, trail runs in it. As I record this podcast, I am sitting in my running shorts and my running shoes are on. So. I would say I'm somewhat serious about this, guys. Patrick, you uh, runner oh or not? God. Any running in your life? No, 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 no except no, for the cyclocross. No, no, no running, huh? Uh, well, I no. When I do cyclocross, I don't run. I'm just not fit enough. <laughs> <laughs> you just bunny hop uh, everything, it's a, huh? It's a, it's a, it's a very quick uh, hike. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, jaunt. If you do decide to take up running, uh, you'll certainly want to reference this interview we're about to run here on the Pace Line. Uh, a friend of mine and an absolute expert in health and fitness and physical therapy and training athlete, athletes, uh, Bob Forrester, a uh, good buddy. In fact, he's repairing me right now. He's working on my shoulder. Uh, he's the CEO of Forrester Physical Therapy. He also runs a Phase 4 Health and Performance Center. He has trained... Uh, runners and cyclists, MMA fighters, all sorts of people. He's worked with Olympians. Allison Felix is one of his clients, repaired her from a serious ankle injury, Uh, works with Bob Kersey, the preeminent uh, track and field coach. Uh, Bob has been going to the Olympics and acting as a consultant and coach and somebody who helps athletes along uh, since the 84 games. Um, He's an absolute expert in the area. He's also written a, a very good book, uh, on running again like i said he's worked with he's worked with me as a cyclist and he also works with running so i thought he was a perfect guy to go talk to about you know cyclists who think they might want to try some running and some of the things they should know and think about uh before they get into this so here's my conversation with bob down at his offices at forrester physical therapy bob you are both the man who fixes people and makes them better with both your businesses so that's why we reached out to bob to talk about Riding and running, more specifically, getting involved in running for the cyclist. The cyclist who's thinking about getting involved in running or picking up or putting on a pair of shoes and starting to run. First of all, Bob, what is what are the basic differences between riding and running physiologically? What, what are the different muscles involved here? Yeah, bicycling um, is more about key, uh, concentric contractions of the muscles. That is muscle shortening to create power. 
Running also has eccentric lengthening of muscles while they're contracting and while they're releasing a contraction. So on the basic muscular level, there's more stress with eccentric contractions than concentric shortening. So there's more stress with running uh, on the musculoskeletal system. Obviously, you're weight-bearing, and there's these type of muscle contractions that make it harder on the connective tissue, tendons, and connective tissue um, in running. And there's different muscle groups in running, uh, non-acceleratory running, so you're not sprinting uh, or accelerating your speed or going uphill. The hamstrings and the glutes are the major motor. In cycling, of course, you're supposed to use your hamstring glutes, but the quads are very dominant in cycling and pushing down motion. So what you, why, why, runners sh- cycl- sorry, why cyclists should run is because it strengthens a complementary muscle group, more hamstrings, more glutes, and this muscular imbalance that a cyclist can create by just cycling can partially be uh, remediated by you know, getting into running as well. Well, for years, we've been told as cyclists, oh, you're doing the better thing. You're in the low-impact sport. It's better for you. And that's we've all been kind of brainwashed that way. And we're all a lot of us cyclists think, well, I, I shouldn't be running at all. It's, it's high-impact. I'm going to hurt myself. Is, are you saying that's not true? You should go ahead and, and try a little bit of running? Yeah. You, you know, when you talk about running being damaging to the body, you're talking about when you're getting over 10, 12 miles a week or you're getting into longer runs. And when you say damaging, it's all depends on your alignment, your posture. Some people are built well for running and you have to learn how to run. Just like, you know, you should focus on your stroke, uh, pedal stroke analysis. You need to work on your mechanics of running to run properly. And there is a set of mechanics that are simple and governed by simple laws of physics, how to move over, over the ground in the most efficient manner. And so mechanics come into it. So, you know, running uh, 10, 12 miles a week for a fit cyclist who does not have any musculoskeletal serious injuries like hip arthritis or knee arthritis or a busted up ankle, um, running is a perfectly complementary activity. At that mileage, it's, you know, healthy with good shoes and good technique um, is, the, is, the, is the carve out there. Um, but, yeah, running is a, is a great form of exercise. You will have a higher heart rate. It is more, especially depending on your size, it's harder to modulate your heart rate zones in running than cycling. You know, you're non-weight bearing and you can change to an easier gear and stay in a certain zone. In running, you got to carry your weight over that land and depending on your fitness and your body weight and your technique, your heart rate could be higher. So while running is a good, great cross-training activity for cyclists, especially in say the off season or the early season, um, it needs to be concerned. You need to be concerned that it's in the right heart rate for your physiology right now, mm-hmm. and how to adapt that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, Bob's written a book called Healthy Running Step by Step, which is an obvious place to start. You pick up his book, read the book. But what are some of the what are the ways a cyclist who's been a serious cyclist and maybe done little or no running? What are the ways? How should they get started in this activity? What's the first step in your step by step book? <laughs> Yeah, the again, I look at the activities of both. Cycling tends to tighten the hip flexors because you're limited in your range of motion at your hip or your thigh bone goes through a limited range of motion. So cyclists, and that's why when you get off the bike, it's hard to stand up totally straight. So cyclists need to think about a good flexibility program before they get into running because the weight bearing and, and uh, impact of running 
uh, could be more injurious to the joints and tendons, you have to prepare them some. So one thing, first thing is a lot more flexibility work, stretching, static stretching with foam rolling. And then you think about the calves uh, and the feet and the Achilles. You know, these are going to be the areas that, sure, you work them on the bicycle, but not under those kind of forces. I think runners need to be careful of their back and then the calf and Achilles tendon. So one of the best ways to get started is really hiking and walking. You know, start with 20-minute walks, start some hikes on the weekend, and then on some of those, you know, 20, 30-minute walks, you break into some running. So walk running uh, is a way, a workout that helps you transition. You walk for 10 minutes to warm up, you break into a, a jog or run for maybe three minutes, then you walk for two, run for three, and maybe you do six of those the first day, maybe five. And make sure you stretch before and after. And um, the mechanics, yeah, in a, in a healthy running step-by-step, the running, correct running mechanics are broken down pretty simply. Mm-hmm. So someone could follow that you have to focus on your arm swing, your knee rise as you're running, and then your cadence, the how fast we're turning over. Since cyclists use 90 RPM and higher, you know, some of that motor memory is going to carry over that they're going to have a faster cadence, which is what we're looking for, a higher cadence, meaning more steps per minute. And it cuts each step into a sh- makes each step shorter and it helps you really land below your center of gravity which is one of the keys to running most people are overstriding, taking too few steps per minute and then by definition that means the steps are longer the foot's landing out in front of them they're crashing down on their heel heel striker and there's more problems with that runners we teach runners to shorten their stride snap the leg back and make sure they're keeping the stride length short so their leg lands as close as possible below their center of gravity. That's one of the key mechanical and laws of physics that needs to be observed for good running. Uh, how about surfaces? Should we be starting in, on the pavement or dirt or all of the above? Yeah, packed dirt is the best, you know. Uh, obviously, you're looking out for roots and rocks and holes, but uh, a packed surface like uh, compressed, uh, de- uh, was it, decomposed granite that you see they use in these parks and things, those are great surfaces. Um, any dirt surface is good. Grass is good if it's even. And blacktop is, is more forgiving than cement. So having said all that, you know, low mileage, getting in the right shoes, running in the right way, you can make it work on any surface. Uh, should we expect to be sore and what do we do about it? Yeah, it's, again, those eccentric muscle contractions. When you land on a stance foot and running, your knee actually bends and flexes and your ankle flexes and your hip flexes. All of that is to, you know, lower your center of gravity when you hit the ground on foot strike. And those lengthening contractions, the muscles are holding their tension, but they're lengthening are really difficult or stressful for the connective tissue. So people get more soreness in running. And it's about stretching, foam rolling, being reasonable with the progression of your, your mileage or time. I really would run by time instead of mileage. And, you know, you can adapt to that by taking it slow, stretching before and after, Foam rolling is, is a great recovery tool, and then icing anything that gets a hint of soreness. You might as well ice it and make sure it doesn't turn into an injury. Cyclists are pretty attuned to their workout zones. A lot of us know, you know, where our like a threshold is and what their aerobic training zone is. Do those cross over to the range? Somebody gets now, makes the next step, and thinks they want to start going faster or picking up the pace or training for a 5K. Do those, do those training zones cross over to running? No, not well. In fact, when we, at phase four, when we train triathletes, we need to test them separately, a VO2 test on their bike and their run. 
you know, most athletes are going to be much more efficient at one or the other. If you've been running your whole life, you're going to be an efficient, more efficient runner. If you're new to cycling, you're not turning the pedals uh, as efficiently as possible. So the heart rate zone, it doesn't, uh, you know, in push comes to shove, we could do a, a, a run test or a cycling test of VO2 and, and give you a factor to, to help. But the truth is you, you really don't know if someone's more efficient running until you look at them. Mm-hmm. So no, there's, there's probably going to be a 10 or maybe even a 15 beat different in your zones. Mm-hmm. But whether it's up or down depends on if you've been a great cyclist and you're really efficient, I would go 10 beats higher uh, on your running to be in the same zone. Mm-hmm. Um, How about PRE, a per- perceived you know, exertion? Perce- it's, it's an interesting thing. Perceived exertion, when you look at the research, is really very poorly matched to the effort you're putting out. We use it during testing, and coaches who don't do VO2 testing um, have to come up with a field test. And so then they start talking about different zone and perceived exertion. But the truth is, I've had cyclists get on a, on a, you know, on a VO2 bike, get on their bike in a VO2 test and say, I don't feeling great today and put out great numbers. And I've seen others feel, feel like they're feeling great and they're not, their power is not great and their efficiency is not great. So perceived exertion is not a great um, uh, mechanism to judge it. But I will say that, you know, and it's hard at first, but if you can run on a treadmill, it's going to be a little bit easier. We didn't talk about that for surface. Treadmill surface is actually one of the most forgiving. Good place to start because you can count your steps. And, you know, you're looking for 30 steps every 10 seconds. It works for almost all of us. Shortening your stride length. You'll see even if you're doing 28 in 10 seconds, you think it's close. No, you got to get to 30 because when you do the math, that's a lot less steps. Um, and so when you get up to that and watch the tread on the treadmill, you can see the time count your stairs, steps. Um, you can also, you know, it's going to be a little bit easier, lower heart rate because the surface is moving for you. You just got to jump in the air and land again. And so um, these are the factors that come into, uh, you know, making a switch over to running. Mm-hmm. And when is it okay to add intensity or hills? Well, first I would say uh, cyclists need to think about why they would do that. Now, if you're picking up running to, say, do cycle cross race, and you got to condition your feet and your hamstrings and your Achilles. Running up muddy hills is one of the toughest things on your Achilles tendons and shin splints and things like that. So you got to get to flat running first, non-acceleratory running. And then if I were to re- do some hill training, it would be uh, short hills on a grassy surface or as forgiving surface as possible. And working on, you know, really driving the knees forward and swinging the arms uh, for momentum. And so then once you maybe, you know, it depends on how long you're going to run for, but if you get three or four weeks of running, then you added some hills either in your run or you can go, you know, warm up and then go someplace where there's a hill and do some repeats, um, but short. So I think, you know, you, you practice first with hills that take 10 or 15 seconds, and it's never an all-out sprint. Um, just like on the bicycle, you know, intervals aren't always 100% hardcore. They're in between the zone you want. So first you're going up the hill at a moderate pace and walking back down and recovering and going again. You can't do too many, maybe three, four, 10 second, 15 second hills uh, to start with and then build from there. Well, you've given us a lot of information there. Some of it's cautionary in nature, but I think bottom line, you're saying go for it. I mean, go for a run, try it out, see how it works in the end. Yeah, it would bring up one other issue. Cyclists, as uh, many people know, have been studied and have found to have really very poor bone density, especially uh, after 50, uh, we're all losing a lot of bone density and because Cyclists can spend 8, 12 hours, 15 hours a week on a bike sweating, where runners aren't going to do that. Many other athletes aren't going to be sweating that long. In that sweat, we're leaching a lot of calcium. 
and we're sweat, losing a lot of calcium and sweat. It has to come from somewhere as leached from the bone. So uh, we see that the bone density for cyclists is not great, whereas adding in hiking, running uh, is a great way to, you know, offset some of the negative, well, one of the few negative effects of cycling in this bone density. So some weight-bearing activity even throughout the cycling season would be good, but I know a lot of people use this running in the, in the beginning of the season or the cyclocross season, um, and, you know, I understand that. It makes sense. So I think it's a good idea. Uh, toughens your tendons even more if you start right and be progressive. Definitely increases your bone density and the strength of muscles that you're neglecting in cycling. Oh, Bob, uh, thanks for the information as always, and I'm going to go for a run. Let's go do it. Thanks, Mike. Boy, this really is turning into the old show, huh? Bone density, <laughs> really lack of calcium. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. You get off of my lawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But some good stuff there, though, and it actually a great indicator of how little I know. I mean, there was a lot there that I was like, oh, wow, that's a smart practice, mm-hmm. and I have not been doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the name of that book again? Okay, the book is Healthy Running Step-by-Step. Uh, the interview, again, was with Robert Forster. He's a physical therapist. Uh, he runs Forster PT in Santa Monica. He also runs a Phase 4 Health and Performance Center, also in Santa Monica. Yeah, good book. Um, lots of you know, lots of good tips to follow. Nutrition's covered here. Um, one of the takeaways, and I'm already kind of working on the program, is Bob does have that, that talk about the higher cadence for running. That's one of the mm-hmm. focal points. He wants to actually have you think about, remember the Roadrunner? And Wiley yeah. Coyote, that not that fast, but how the Roadrunner kind of spun his wheels a little bit. Same idea with running. Shorten the stride a little bit, a little higher cadence, keeps you from you know kind of launching yourself and then trying to try to grab yourself with your with your forward foot. So, yep, good yeah. guy knows a lot about what he's talking about here. And heck, I, I mean, I'm enjoying my running already, guys. So I'm into it. Well, well you know, good for you. I, I, I've always thought that uh, runners and cyclists are sort of, you know, they are close cousins in what we like and why. Um, you know, the, we both we both have the ability to, you know, go out on your own from pra- practically anywhere and get a great workout while seeing the world, mm-hmm. right, or seeing part of the world. Um, of course, there's equipment differences and how long it takes and so forth. But, you know, it's uh, it, certainly a good uh, good way to get in a, a second type of workout, uh, especially this time of year when you maybe want to you know, get off the bike a little bit but stay in shape. So, hey, good interview, Hottie. Thanks. Yeah. All right. And Patrick, tell yeah. us what's going on in your part of the world. Oh, well, um, at a certain level, I can't really say life has gotten back to normal here yet. It has more or less for me, but the lives of my friends, uh, to a a fair degree are still pretty disrupted as a result of the fires. Uh, I mean, just today, I think we're at the sixth day of a crew of 40 or 50 workers here, um, power washing every building in our complex because they've got to get all the weird chemicals and ash and all that stuff off of it. Um, you walk into a building and there's an air filtration unit trying to uh, deal with all that's been left behind from all that stuff. On the positive side, um, 
We had an event recently uh, that benefited REMBA, the Redwood Empire Mountain Bike Alliance, um, that will go toward uh, repairing trails in Annadale. And we've had a portion of Annadale reopen, um, almost 40% of it. So that's pretty exciting. But a big chunk of the park is still closed. Now, the big development here, aside from in my own life, is that Peter Sagan is coming for a ride on November 28th. Uh, it is a charity to help fire victims. Um, to my knowledge, the, uh, the money will go to the King Ridge Foundation and then they will uh, disperse it. Uh, but, you know, this is a, a, a pretty select sort of thing. I, if I understand correctly, it's, all, it's open to only 400 people. So it is expected to sell out and there will be also a separate VIP experience where there will be a reception with Sagan. And it's pretty cool to me that, you know, arguably one of the most popular riders in pro cycling today is going to be here. And it really goes to his, uh, his hydration sponsor, Osmo, uh, Ben Capron down there. Uh, I still haven't even gotten to talk to him to find out how he just put this together, but, uh, Sagan's going to be stateside and he managed to, uh, get some time, carved out of his schedule so that he could come up here for the event. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. That and cool. in, uh, in my own life, I have become, uh, sort of the cycling goodwill, uh, thanks to RKP readers and some select, uh, companies in the bike industry. I've been receiving near daily shipments of boxes of clothing and gear helmets, uh, shoes, just all sorts of stuff. And I've had to take on an additional garage bay to hold all this stuff. And so, uh, you know, just before we started recording today, I, I was um, accommodating, you know, yet another local rider. Uh, you know, his, his home burned down. His wife is my kid's pediatrician, you know. So, I mean, the the connections uh, here go deep and it, you know, just there's nobody unaffected by the fires uh, at any level. And so things here in Santa Rosa continue to be really unusual and uh, in many ways, uh, anxiety inducing, you know, rents are going up. Uh, the cost of houses is going up and people are, are watching all this with great trepidation. So we don't really know how all of this is going to shake out, but we're doing what we can to get riders back out on the bike so that they have that uh, for them. Uh, also, I should mention that um, Specialized has given uh, something on the order of 500 bikes uh, to NorCal Bike Sport, and those bikes started getting uh, distributed to kids who signed up for the program uh, this past Saturday um, at the DG Gelati Cup. Uh, so at the cross race, the BRAD Foundation was there um, helping to, uh, you know, take the kids who had already signed up and match them up with the bikes that had been built for them. Uh, it's really been something. The, the effort going into just building all these bikes has been something. Uh, frame builder Jeremy Seasip had a crew over at his place and they were assembling bikes, uh, you know, even though they're not associated with NorCal Bike Sport. Same with uh, Kevin Gambini, the owner of uh, Breakaway Bikes right by me. 
He's in no way affiliated with NorCal Bike Sport, but he kept making trips over to their warehouse, picking up bikes, assembling them, and then taking them back over. So it's been a pretty startling uh, community effort here. That's awesome. Tragedy is bringing out the best in people, and you're really seeing that right now. That is uh, a terrible thing that happened, but really showing the best of what what the cyclist community has to offer. So that is... That is really cool. That yeah. is really cool. Well, let's head on to the Paceline Picks. And, of course, that is the section of the show where we talk about something really important that we've noticed in the cycling world. Something that we have done a lot of research on or at least thought about three minutes before the episode began. I'm going to go ahead and go first. And <laughs> this time, I'm going to talk about my new phone, the iPhone ten. Uh, specifically, I think that it is a, the best phone that has ever been made for cyclists. And here's why. The big selling point of this phone is the new Face ID. And for me, at least, what that means is I can take the phone out of my jersey pocket. And even when I'm wearing my helmet and my glasses, my uh, cycling glasses, it recognizes my face and unlocks, which means... As you know, like a lot of people who have to use, who uh, use their uh, keep their phone with them as a way to facilitate even the possibility of going on a ride. You know, you got to you got to be able to be gotten a hold of. Plus, you'll want to take pictures, right? And maybe you want to send it and put up an Instagram post. Anyway, I pick up the take the phone out of my pocket, hold it up to my face, it unlocks. And I'm good to go. Never have to take off my uh, never have to take off my gloves, and don't have to uh, you know. Obviously, the thumbprint stuff no longer a factor. So, paceline pick the extremely expensive but bike friendly iPhone 10. <laughs> okay. Ha. Any other selling points for cyclists other than the fact that you don't have to uh, deal with the thumbprint or or your security code? Yes. Uh, it has a fantastic camera. Of course, most most phones have really capable cameras now, but the iPhone X, uh, like uh, the iPhone 8 Plus, I believe, and you know, going back to others, but this is the smallest phone that has a dual camera. And that means you have a great optical zoom, you have uh, incredibly rich-looking pictures, and uh, while I'm no great photographer... I am noticing that even my very poor photography skills are showing some pretty nice shots right now. So, uh, great for unlocking, great for taking pictures. What more could you ask for? Cool. It could be cheaper. That would be something. (laughs) (laughs) Hottie, why don't you go next? All right, guys. My pace line pick is the five-minute Peloton. You know, there's nothing like a big group ride. The glide of the pack, the mash at the front— the camaraderie in the middle, even the view from the back, just a few of the reasons, rides of 50 or more can be such a thrill. I remember one of my first times I got in a really big pack. It was a charity ride, and I was just getting started with road bikes. I could not believe how powerful the pack felt as it rolled down the road as one. I'd, I'd had, I just had to have more of it. Once I did it, I had to do more. So, You know, you go out and you seek out more group rides to find that rush again. The donut ride, the see me ride, the house of pain ride, all those fed that weekly need. Some of the bigger rides I've latched onto can almost be overwhelming. Like Levi's Grand Fondo, it's like 
a rolling city. And even though it's competitive, the start of the Leadville Trail 100 also feels like a town on wheels. The tires rolling, the sound of thousands of simultaneous shifts, the numerous conversations going on make the big group ride a unique experience that no sport can match. I don't jump in as much as I used to, big group rides, that is. A few too many near misses, getting taken out by someone crossing wheels, getting addicted to gravel riding, some of the reasons I've drifted away from the bigger get-togethers on two wheels. But recently, I saw a ride I wish I had not missed. Rob Dollar could have been a teammate of mine had I stayed on the Big Orange cycling team. Rob rode and raced for Big Orange. He rode road and mountain. I did as well, but I left the squad a few years a few years back. By all accounts, Rob was a fabulous teammate. And even though Big Orange is based in the South Bay of Los Angeles, Rob continued to fly the Big Orange colors when he moved to the Phoenix area. Rob's riding days are now over. On October 29th, while riding at South Mountain, Rob was hit and killed. He was 36. The 19-year-old who hit Rob was allegedly high and drunk. Reportedly, she was passing another cyclist and had entered the opposite lane when Rob came around the corner, descending, and collided with the young woman's car. Anna Leah Dominguez is charged with manslaughter. One week to the day after his death, the Phoenix Bike Community held a ride, a ride that is in Rob's honor. I'm sure someone has done a count. Thousands, more than likely, were there. This was one hell of a group ride. Someone set up along the route and taped the passing pack. They rode three and four abreast on a flat section of road. From nose to tail, the pack took just more than five minutes to pass the film crew. Here's a sample. Yep, they cheered for Rob as they rode by. It seemed to take forever to get to the end of the ride. And maybe that's the point here. Make this ride big enough that it's hard to forget. Hard to forget that cyclists do stick together and hard to forget what happened to Rob Dollar. So my pace line pick is the five-minute peloton. From the dedicated roadies at the front to the casual riders on beach cruisers on the back. And this tape is still going. And they're, they're still riding by. Five-minute peloton, my pace line pick. Oh, fantastic one. All right, bring us on home, Patrick. Okay, uh, so I just found out that Schwinn is going to do a replica, kind of a reissue of the old Stingray that was in very short supply, the Gray Ghost. Um, I'm doing all I can not to go online and buy one of these right now. Uh, I, well, you know, the best way to do this is actually to, I'm going to take a page out of Hottie's book and I'm going to read an appreciation that I wrote for Alfred's the Schwinn Stingray Inventor. Al Fritz, the Schwinn employee who invented the Stingray, has died. It was Fritz who noticed in the early 1960s the rise of the muscle car culture and how that began to bleed into bicycling with kids customizing their bikes. The Stingray was less a bike than a hot rod with two wheels and pedals. And for kids like me who were born in the 1950s and 60s, the Stingray was one of the first status symbols we ever encountered. It wasn't just a toy, no. The Stingray 
was rolling style. It was Beach Boys hip and indestructible as a Chevy Bel Air. That is, until you took it off a five-brick-high ramp. In my neighborhood, we measured ramp height by the number of bricks we stacked at the high end. Turns out, nothing could stand up to that. To say that Fritz was the inventor of the Stingray isn't overstating his achievement. Prior to the Stingray, kids' bikes had all the flash and style of a turnip. With the Stingray, Fritz gave kids a chance to reflect their personality with a production product. Ask anyone involved in branding and marketing today, and they'll tell you that only the true transcendent products do that. How influential was Fritz? Here's one way to measure it. Who didn't want a Stingray? Hell, I still want one. The Orange Crate was the first product I can recall coveting of seeing someone else with something that I actively, passionately wanted. My mom, being the closeted hippie that she was, bought me a Raleigh chopper. Though it was Union Jack cool, it was poison oak on an open wound. Yeah, it was orange, but still so close and yet... The Orange Crate taught me the value of the feature. It wasn't just a Stingray. No, it had a five-speed gear shifter, handbrakes, and the banana seats sat on shock absorbers. Shock absorbers! Those gears, those brakes, that suspension. The machine was the very expression of aspiration. I'd look at one and dream of all the riding I could do, if only. The effect Fritz had on me and so many other people, Schwinn sold more than a million Stingrays was to plant the seed of making the bike itself cool. Here at RKP, we like to say that cycling isn't just one hobby. It's at least four or five of them. That love of the thing itself, of the synergy that arises from our appreciation of both what the bicycle can do and our fascination with a machine made beautiful can keep cycling exciting even when we're unable to ride. Fritz wasn't the first to make the bike beautiful, not by a long shot. What made the Stingray different was that he captured so many of us when we were blank canvases to passion. There came a point for most of us when we gave up the bike. Those of us who found our way back to the sport owe him a debt. Turns out the Stingray was as durable as a dream. Those childhood loves are rarely shaken. Thank God. And I think that is going to be a very fitting final word for this episode of The Pace Line. If you haven't been to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us, do it. It's an easy way to get your name memorialized forever in a podcast, if you say something nice enough about us. (laughs) For Hottie and Patrick, I'm Fatty, and you've just survived episode number 90 of The Pace Line. I'm... Pleased to note that I have yet to see myself because I'm sure I look fat.